Well, you can grab a seat. Good morning. Welcome back. Uh, if this is your first time, uh, just let me welcome you. My name is Jacob Smith, uh, and I'm the teaching director here for our Grace College Anderson campus. Uh, so I'm so glad to have you. Uh, I'm just a little bit curious. Uh, Passion was this weekend uh, down in Houston, and I heard it was a slam a jam a dunkin' awesome time. Uh, how many of us went to part of it, and yet we're already back in town? I know that none, uh, one, two, one of us did. Good job, Weston Garner. Proud of you. That's really his name. I didn't just make that up. But yeah, good job. All right. But yeah, that, well, that's cool. I'm glad that some of us experienced it. Uh, I'm glad that those, the rest of us, maybe we weren't there, but um, hopefully it was a good, relaxing weekend. Hopefully it's a restful weekend. Hopefully we're ready uh, for the big game tonight. Apparently you get in legal trouble if you say Super Bowl, but oops, but uh, you, because it's copyrighted. Uh, but anyway, uh, hopefully, man, this has been a great weekend for you. Hopefully this has been a great semester. Uh, and so hopefully some of you are really involved in your studies and learning and growing and and changing in the midst of your pursuits, your academic pursuits. And I just want to let you know uh, that if you weren't a history major at A&M, you're missing out just a little bit, okay? As, as a self-proclaimed, well, not just self-proclaimed history major, I guess the university also proclaimed me to be a history major. Uh, and I graduated, so I'm now a historian. Uh, so as an official licensed historian, uh, I'm just going to let you know, you missed out, man. You missed out on some pretty exciting things uh, that we learned about in school. One of my favorite things that I learned about uh, was this little thing called uh, World War II. Uh, it was in the 40s, and it's kind of a big deal, but you know, Whatever. But anyway, so it was back in the 40s, World War II, and it affected a lot of the world. Uh, And it affected, in fact, parts of the world that really wanted no part of the war. They didn't really know what was going on. They weren't involved in the politics or the struggles at all. And yet there were troops and machines and things that would land in certain areas of the world, use them as staging areas. And they landed, especially in the South Pacific, on certain islands where there were locals who had never even seen like a flashlight and all of a sudden, there's like a fighter plane on their island, right? And so that's a huge jump, right? There's like at least a couple technological steps between flashlight and fighter plane. Like there's, that's a big leap. And so these locals, when they're confronted with these weird people that are showing up, in particular at an island called Tana in the nation of what is now Vanuatu in the South Pacific, these people on the island of Tana, they were so confused and they were asking themselves, who are these people, right? Who are these weird looking people with these strange machines that they can do all this crazy stuff that we've never heard of before? And someone in the crowd at some point shouted out, uh, gods? And then everyone was like, yeah, okay, yeah, they're gods. All right, yeah. And so they all decided, okay, these are gods. And so they began a religion. They began religions, what we now call cargo cults, because these are religions formed around uh, the technology that landed on these islands in World War II. And so all of a sudden, to this day, we still have islands like Tana, where these people regularly dress up in ways that try to emulate and try to copy what they saw. They hold parades where they try to emulate and copy what they saw from these strange beings. In fact, they build replicas of the things that they saw. They build fake uh, airstrips and fake planes and all these different things in an attempt to bring back their savior, whose name is John from. As in, hi, I'm John from America. That's their Messiah. 
And so when we see this, man, when we hear about this, the BBC did this crazy documentary on it where the guy went and interviewed all these people. And what we find, man, one of the biggest lessons we can learn from that is if your name is John, do not go to Tana, right? Like that's too much power. That would be weird, right? That would get out of hand very quickly. We learned that. The other thing that we learned is, man, the reality is that everyone worships something. Man, we will find a way to worship anything in this world. There are religions centered around the craziest people or circumstances. Uh, I found this past week, there's a religion all about the worship of dirt. Just dirt. People are like, yeah, that's my God. All right, and they worship that, man. People will worship anything. And we will worship all these crazy things. We will run in all these crazy directions, which is insane because it's in complete denial of the fact that there is a God who created all these other things that we're trying to worship. Those people on the island of Tana, they have had missionaries show up preaching Christianity, preaching the truth of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And these people have rejected it in favor of John Frum. John Frum. Man, the truth is that we all worship something. We all worship something and we all will create for ourselves these idols or we will create for ourselves these rival gods out of anything from, from people like John Frum to accomplishments, uh, to academics, to experiences, to relationships. We will create these idols and we will worship these things. We give them our time and our thought and our resources. We dedicate everything that we are to please this God of choice at the expense of everything and everyone around us. We all worship something. And this semester, we're studying the book of Hebrews. And we're walking through this book chapter by chapter because it's all about Jesus. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about, Jesus. And the book of Hebrews is going to explain to us who Jesus is, what Jesus has done on our behalf. Because we live in a world that constantly tells us that we deserve the best. And so we want to have the best. We want to be the best. We want to know what's best. But what we find in the book of Hebrews is that no matter what anyone thinks or says or does, Jesus is better. He's better. What we're going to see this morning in particular in the very first chapter, in the very opening of the book, we see the initial argument from our author that explains that Jesus is better than any idol, any rival God that you can create. He's better. He's better than John Frum. Thank the Lord for that. (laughs) What we find in this first chapter, I mean, what we see is the author is addressing an idol, a very popular idol of the day. Because the thing is, we all create gods, right? We all create idols. Martin Luther, uh, in his larger catechism, in other words, in one of his things where he wrote what he believed, uh, he made this great observation that the Ten Commandments start off forbidding the worship of idols. And he thinks that there was a reason behind that. He, he proposed... Now, the Ten Commandments starts off forbidding the worship of idols because we never break the other commandments without breaking the first one. What Martin Luther was saying is that basically at the root of all sin is a heart that values something over God, is a heart that worships, in other words, that lifts up and praises something over God. That's the root of any sin in our lives. And it's easy for us to kind of identify certain negative and destructive pursuits 
that lead us down that wrong path. It's, it's easy for us to say, well, yeah, like there's a problem if you're idolizing you know, lust or uh, just sexuality at, at all costs, or there's a problem if you're idolizing greed or, or pride or hatred or selfishness, you know, et cetera. There's a problem if you go down these sort of destructive, negative paths. But what's beautiful is that God doesn't just forbid certain things like that. In fact, God wants us and encourages us down certain good and healthy pursuits, right? God wants us to rest. He wants us to work. He wants us to use our minds. He wants us to use our strength. He wants us to build relationships with other people. He wants us to pursue marriage. He wants those things from us. He encourages those parts of our lives. That's why you don't need to question me because I've been spending a lot of time with my daughter Charlotte recently, right? Like that's not necessarily an issue. You're, you're not going to show up at my house and be like, Jacob, I don't know. You're hanging out with this girl a lot. <laughs> We're getting a little concerned. I have to. She will literally die if I don't, right? That's, she depends on me. She has to wear a bib for diaper changes, like just in case. That's what's going on right there. I have to hang out with her and it's okay because God wants me. He in fact commands me to be a good father. Our God tells us to pursue certain things, certain paths, certain goals. And yet what's so tricky is that as easily as we identify those negative pursuits and those negative goals, we so easily look over the fact that we can take those positive things and those good things and we become too focused on them. And suddenly we can find ourselves idolizing these positive pursuits. Suddenly we can find ourselves making these goals into our gods, right? We've all been in that moment where we realize we find ourselves focusing a little too much on our rest at the expense of all the people. Our roommate wants to talk to us about that thing that happened. We're like, just shut it. Your mouth, right? Like this is, we just don't want to deal with it because why? We're tired. We're focusing on that rest. Sometimes we find ourselves focusing too much on work or, or sometimes we find ourselves focusing too much on academics or on friendships, Sometimes we find ourselves in particular at this stage focusing too much on that pursuit of marriage. I say as like three people are still like scanning like, well, green shirt, okay. You know, like that's, <laughs> I know it's happening. Be convicted, right? I know it's happening. We focus sometimes too much on those things. You would need to step into my life. You would need to question me if I went home every day and tried to hang out with Charlotte at the expense of completely ignoring my wife, Susan. Right? If I walked home and she said, hey, how's that? Shut your face. Where's the baby? Like, if I did that, you would need to speak into my life. You need to say, hey, Jacob, what the hell? You know, like, we need to talk. We need to talk about that because I have taken a good pursuit. I've taken a good goal, but I've made it a God. And that is wrong. That is incorrect. That is what God forbids us from doing. And so if that's the case, how can we be careful to keep those pursuits in check? How can we prevent those goals from becoming gods, rival gods in our lives? I'll tell you, there's two big things we need to understand. To, to kind of walk down that path, we need to understand first, where do we create those gods? Where do we create those rival gods? And then second, why? Why do we do it? I was reading an article by Tim Keller on this very subject. He has a book called Rival Gods. It's incredible. 
But there's an excerpt that I was reading online where he's talking about, I mean, where do you find idols in your lives? How do you identify the rival gods? And he gave four really cool parameters, kind of four filters to run your life through. He says, if you're trying to identify rival gods in your life, you need to ask yourself, where do I spend my imagination, my money, my purpose, and my emotion? my imagination, my money, my purpose, and my emotion. What he means by that is where do I put my imagination? In other words, what occupies the most of my thoughts? Where do my thoughts dwell? He quotes this old archbishop from way back in the day who says that your religion is what you do with your solitude. I love that. When you're all by yourself, man, when your time is your own, you found that sweet 3.30 p.m. on a Thursday where all your roommates are gone, where there is no more class for like 20 hours, and you're just sitting there, what do you do? Where do your thoughts go? What do you, what do, you do? How do you fill that time? Could it be an idol? Is there something that you always put there at the expense of, of everything and everyone else? Where do, where do you put your money? Where does your money go? Christ himself in Matthew 6 tells us that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. In other words, where do I put value and worth? Where do I put my money? Because wherever my money goes, that's where my heart is. What do you do with maybe limited resources, right? We've all got resources though. Maybe they're limited, maybe they're abundant. But where do those resources go? How do you spend them? Where, where do you spend that cash? Where does that go? Where, where do you put your purpose? In other words, where do you find the most meaning and fulfillment? One of my favorite questions when I was in junior high ministry, because uh, you have to have really good questions, because otherwise junior high kids are just like, <laughs> that's it, for hours. Uh, and then they punch you. And, but they, you have to have good questions. You have to draw them out of their shell, right? And so like a snake charmer. And so I would have to ask them these good questions. And my favorite question, the thing I would always give them to talk, was, what's your thing? Like, what are you about? What's your thing? And somehow, even though it's a very vague, like, strange question, they would always know, like, what that meant. And they'd be like, soccer, baseball, uh, reading, or, you know, whatever. It's cross-stitching. Oh, okay. And, you know, I would have that question. But if someone asked you that, I mean, how would you answer that? What's your thing? What's your thing? What are you about? What's your answer to that question? Is it an idol? Are you putting your value and your purpose completely in X, Y, Z at the expense of everything, everyone, the God of your life? What, what are you sacrificing on that altar? Where do you put your emotion? In other words, where do you find kind of your most strong, maybe sometimes confusing emotions? The way Tim Keller put it is if you go and find where you are just angry or where you feel scared or where you feel guilt, he says you grab that emotion. I love his illustration. He says you grab it and you pull it up. You pull it up and you will find on the roots idols clinging to that emotion. Why are you so scared about this? Why do you feel so guilty about that? Where are you just wrapping yourself up in a pursuit or an idea, where could that idol, where could that rival God be? So maybe we're using that to kind of process and think like, wow, I'm, I'm really, I don't know, I, I've really given myself over to this or that or, or this or, or that thing. And, and suddenly we start to realize, man, I, there are certain things 
there are certain pursuits, there are certain goals in your life that threaten to be rival gods, that threaten to be idols, things that you worship over God himself. Why? Why do we do that? Why do we take the created things that God has put forth and lift them above the creator himself? Why do we do that? I think for the most part, what we see is there are three certain, there are three kind of particular criteria that these idols will meet. There are three ways that they affect our lives that we value so strongly. They will either have a title, they will have a task, or they will have timing that we value. What I mean by that is there is a title often associated with whatever we worship or whatever we idolize. We will worship or idolize something based on the title that it has or on the title that it can provide to us. Like this. Soap, you know? Soap. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Man. Now, (laughs) that's a Super Bowl ad that's going to play tonight. (laughs) And let's be honest, man. That should make every single person want to be a dad, right? Girls included. Like, everyone everyone is like, I want to be that dad. (laughs) And also buy soap, right? Like, you also want to do that. In addition to that, man, but, but what grabs us, man, what grabs us about that is the fact that we see that title of father, we see that title of dad or of daddy, and that's a title that we cherish and that we value. And honestly, it is a good title. God uses it for himself. God uses the title of father of dad because it's an honorable title. And yet what happens if my entire mind is wrapped around? What happens to my entire identity? What if the only thing I worship is the fact that I want to be a dad? What if it turns out that I can't have kids? What if it turns out that I'm not ever going to get married? What if it turns out that, that I can't do the adoption? What, what if I can't realize that goal? Then what? The reality is that it's just, it's a title like any other title. And yet we find ourselves worshiping uh, companies or schools or people either because they hold that kind of title or because they can give us a title of president, of CEO, of partner, of doctor. And we chase after these titles and we worship and we idolize institutions because of the title that they have or because of the title that they offer. And this is foolishness. Foolishness. Because what Hebrews tells us is that these titles 
pale in comparison to the title owned by Jesus Christ. It tells us in chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus, having become as much superior to angels as the name that Jesus has inherited, is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. What we see in the first chapter of Hebrews in the opening argument of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ has a title like no one else has a title. Jesus Christ is the only one to be called the son of God. He is the son of God of God. Now the author is pulling out angels and he's pointing out angels because as I mentioned, that was a popular idol of that day. Remember, we've got to remember this entire semester, we've got to keep in mind that audience, those Jewish believers facing persecution in the early 60s AD. Because those people, when we look back historically, there was a growing movement where they were beginning to worship angels. They were beginning to think that angels would one day rule the earth. That's how they thought God was going to kind of take care of things. He was going to put angels in charge. And so the author of Hebrews is explaining, no, no, that is not true. And he uses the Old Testament to prove his point. He's quoting right there two different Psalms. He's quoting two different passages from the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 2, and he's quoting 2 Samuel 7. Why? Because remember, the audience, they are Jewish Believers. In other words, these are people who value and prize and respect the Old Testament. And so we're going to see the author use the Old Testament repeatedly through this chapter, through every chapter, to prove his point that no, Jesus is better. He quotes Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That is an enthronement psalm that they used where God would put his king over the nations. He is saying, you are the son of God. Not meaning that he has a dad and a mom and suddenly he's a son. Instead, what this means, when you are the son of God, when he is the son of God, that means he's of the same nature as God. It essentially means he is God. Not only is he God, but that means he is now the inheritance. He is the heir to everything that God has, to everything that God has done. We see that Jesus Christ is now the one in the second passage in 2 Samuel 7. He is the one who is, shall be to God a son. Right there, we studied that last uh, semester. We went through the life of David, or whenever we did that. Last semester. When we went through the life of David, we talked about this passage. We saw that this is, in fact, in the immediate context, talking about Solomon, where God is telling through the prophet Nathan to David, hey, look, I'm going to set up your son, in the immediate context, Solomon, to be king. But the author of Hebrews is explaining there was a two side, there were two sides to that prophecy. God was also proclaiming, he was prophesying the, the return or the appearance of this even greater son, this even greater king, this one who would be son, not only of God, but a son of David, meaning he will be the rightful king over all of Israel, over all of creation. So we find suddenly that the title that Christ has is son of God, son of David. That title is impressive. And because of that title, he offers us a wonderful title. If we, when we keep going in Hebrews, what we'll see in a couple weeks is he, in fact, calls us his brothers. 
sisters, that we are co-heirs to that throne, to that salvation. That's why Paul describes us as children, sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. Suddenly, not only is Christ's title so great, but he offers a little piece of that title to anyone who puts their faith in him. When I realize that I am a sinful, broken person that can do nothing to fix it, when I realize that I have to put my faith, my trust in Jesus Christ, who is God and King, who stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live and die and rise again for my sake, for my forgiveness. When I realize that, and when I trust in that, when I ask the Lord for that forgiveness, suddenly I am given a title. I'm not just forgiven of my debts. My slate isn't just wiped clean. I am given righteousness. I'm given this title. I am now a son of God. You can be a son. You can be a daughter. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that title is better than anything this world has to offer. But sometimes we don't base our idols, we don't base our worship on something because of its title. Sometimes we worship or we idolize something based on the tasks that it can perform, based on the tasks that maybe it allows us to perform. Like this. Marsha, what happened? Peter hit me in the nose with a football. I can't go to the dance like this. Well, I'm sure it was an accident, sweetheart. An eye for an eye. That's what Dad always says. I never said that, honey. Shut up! Time to teach Peter a lesson. Marsha, eat a Snickers. Why? You get a little hostile when you're hungry. Better? Better. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Jan, this isn't about you. It never is! Snickers. Always good for hunger, right? And weird Super Bowl commercials. That's also coming up tonight. We see a society that promotes certain things, certain objects, certain ideals. Why? Because it will do something for us. It performs a task for us. It it takes care of our hunger. It takes care of our thirst or it takes care of our lack of identity or our lack of purpose. We worship and we idolize things because of the task that it performs. I will worship a substance because it makes me feel good. I will worship an organization because it makes me feel included. I will worship a person because he or she will make me feel desired. We find ourselves lifting up these people, these organizations, these things because of the task that they perform. But here's the problem. Those tasks are Nothing, nothing compared to what Jesus can do, what he has done. The author tells, keeping, keeping on just straight on from that last passage, he says, again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has appointed, anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. We see in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, as the Son of David, as God who will be king forever, has two tasks— He will receive worship 
He will receive worship from all creation. And not only will he receive that worship, but then he will rule over it with that scepter of uprightness over his kingdom. We see in these passages, which are quotations, again, of the Old Testament. He quotes uh, Psalm 97, Psalm 104, and Psalm 45. And every single time, the author is pointing out that these psalms are pointing at Christ. And he says every single time, look, this Christ, this Jesus, he will be the one that everyone will worship. He's reinforcing that truth that every knee will bow, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, all of creation will be subject under him. Everyone will recognize the fact that he is God, the fact that he is king. Those abilities that he has, those tasks that he will perform are huge. And if I am his son, if I am his daughter, I am then given a similar task. I am told to worship him. I am told to move out through creation and be his representative. The task that I'm given through faith in Jesus Christ is the greatest task I could ever find to worship my God and to love his people. That's the task that every believer has been given. Ephesians tells us there are good works that have been prepared for us that we have been saved with a purpose, that we are striving towards a goal of making the Lord known to all of creation. So suddenly we realize, man, these tasks, these things that are performed, these abilities that we see in the world, they are nothing compared to the tasks performed and given to us by Jesus Christ. He's better. His tasks are are better, but sometimes it's not the title. Sometimes it's not the task. Sometimes it's the timing. What I mean by that is we will worship or we will idolize something based on its immediate availability or its ability to even just fill our time. This past year, this is amazing. This past year, Apple users alone, okay, so only people using it like an iPhone or an iPad, those people in the past year, 2014, they spent over $10 billion downloading over 25 billion apps to fill their time, right? To fill that space. We have uh, the top grossing app right now is Clash of Clans. Let's, let's all just be honest right now. Let's take a moment. We're all friends. Who has played Clash of Clans at some point in your life? You've like played, you've participated in it. Oh, that's okay. okay. That's a lot less. Good. <laughs> the rest of you, good job. Those of you, okay, but no, that's okay. Top grossing app, okay? When I was in youth ministry, kids loved it. This one kid got $200 to iTunes and gift card money for Christmas, $200. He spent it all on Clash of Clans in like a month. And then by February, he was like, yeah, I don't play that anymore. I was like, what are you doing? What is your life? (laughs) But this app, this top grossing app, it is the top grossing app in the app store. Why? Because it is currently making $1.6 million a day, a day in in in-app purchases. Okay. So that money, it's not, that's not included in that over 10 billion that we spent. That's just on purchasing the apps. This is an in-app purchase over $1.6 million a day. They add 
more than 100,000 people every single day install it for the first time on their phone or on their tablet. This past year, the most recent statistic I could find was second quarter 2014. Okay, so I couldn't find all of 2014, but I found second quarter. So we got three months. Three months of 2014, Netflix streamed. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Five billion, five billion hours in three months. Five billion hours. Now, for those of you that are not mathematical savants who can't suddenly do that math in your head, I used a calculator and I discovered that that is 571,000 years in three months. In three months! That's what we streamed! That's a lot of Cake Boss and Breaking Bad. Like, that's just a lot. Five billion hours in three months we spent on Netflix. This is amazing. Amazing. And it's going up every single quarter. They're like, oh, it's even more. It's, it's insane. It's insane. We are spending so much time. We are spending so much of our time on these pursuits, on these things that are readily available, on these things that are immediately in front of us because it just happens to have good timing. Or we spend so much time because we want it to fill our time. We feel like we have extra time. We as a society have more leisure time than we ever have before. You are in a stage. It doesn't feel like it sometimes, and some of you are exceptions to the rule. But for the most part, you are in a stage where you have more leisure time than you will ever have again the rest of your life. And what are we doing with that time? How are we using that time? What are you doing? Because I would bet whatever it is, the vast majority of it pales in comparison to what Jesus Christ offers to what Hebrews tells us Jesus Christ has. Quoting a psalm again, saying, You, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and, in the, hev- and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe that will roll them up. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you, you are the same, and your years will have no end. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? What is he saying? He's quoting Psalm 102. He's quoting Psalm 110, saying, Jesus Christ, his time is infinite. Jesus Christ laid the foundation of the earth. He existed before time began. That's what we were just singing. We find that everything will perish. Everything on this earth will perish. Everything that has been created will perish, but you, Jesus Christ, will remain. Your years have no end. Everything else is like an old garment. It's going to get rolled up and thrown out, but Jesus Christ remains. So the angels have nothing on this. In other words, any idol you create, any rival God that you find in your life has nothing on this. None of them have been promised what Jesus has been promised, that one day all of his enemies will become a footstool under his feet. The author says that these angels, they're sent out to serve 
They're not rulers, they're servants. And who are they serving? Those who are to inherit salvation. In other words, people. Those of us who are co-heirs to that victory. Not salvation, it's not talking about sin and death. It's talking about literally uh, being saved from your enemy, right? It's just talking about victory over enemies. We will, if we have our faith in Jesus Christ, we will be victorious. We will stand in victory. We will rule with him for all of eternity. All of those enemies will be a footstool under our feet. And the author says, even angels just serve, are meant to, meant to serve you. Nothing that this world has to offer even comes close. Everything in our present age that is broken, it's temporary. Everything in this age will end. And how will it end? In Jesus Christ's victory. That's how it ends. That's how this world will come to a close. So this week, honestly, this semester, I would encourage you, search your heart. As we sing a few more songs, search your heart. Don't come up yet, sorry. That's the other two. Search your heart. Search your mind. Where are you creating idols? Where are you creating rival gods? Where's your imagination? Where's your money? Where's your purpose? Where's your emotion? What title are you lifting above all else? What task are you worshiping? What, what timing are you pursuing? Because everything in this world, all of those rival gods, they're temporary and they fail. But Jesus is the God who will reign forever. I have a friend who was going to be a dad a few years ago. First time dad. I've told this before. But he's going to be a first time dad. And he was excited. His wife was excited. They were all pumped up and excited. And they found out a few months into their pregnancy that their kid had this really weird, very rare genetic disorder where it might not survive the term. And then even after he's born, probably not long after that. And sure enough, they carried this, their son all the way to term. And he was born, and he lived for 45 minutes. So my friend had that title of dad. He was a dad for 45 minutes. And then he wasn't. But if you talk to him about that experience, if you ask him about that time, now that he has two more beautiful sons, he will tell you without fail that he grew in his faith, that he grew in his love, that he grew in his trust in the Lord so much during that time. Why? Because his hope was not in the title of dad. Because his hope was in Jesus's title of king. Jesus Christ's title of God. Jesus Christ's task of gaining all worship, of ruling over all creation forever. That's where his hope was. That's where his worship went. So what are you worshiping? Let's pray. God, we, we thank you that there is 
perfect restoration coming. That God, there's a kingdom approaching. Lord, that, that will just do away with the pain and the death and the sickness. That God, there's a day approaching where we will be reunited with parents, with siblings, God, with friends. That there's a day approaching where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord, that you are God. If you would take a moment right now, ask the Lord to just show you, I mean, where, where are you creating a rival God? Ask the Lord to guide your thoughts to finding those things or those people or that organization or that goal that you are putting above God himself. Ask him that right now. Now, if you would, take a moment. Ask the Lord to show you how can you bring your hope back to him? How can you bring your worship back to him? Is it a conversation you need to have with a friend? Is it something that you just need to pray at the start of every day? Is there some sort of uh, reminder you can give yourself that ultimately Jesus is greater? Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. Ask the Lord to show you that path. And if you have thoughts, if you have questions, if you have more prayer requests, there will be people in the back who are already praying for you. But if you want to give us a specific request, please come do so. Ask the Lord again, God, how do we worship you more?